sisters in the Lord. Thank you so much for your continued partnership in the gospel. And I would like us to turn to the word of God in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 to 3. Please hear the word of God. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. That's the word of God. My country is known for the best marathoners the world has, has ever known. This last week, we lost the world record holder, Kelvin Kipchoge. But uh, before Kelvin, there was a man called uh, Eliud Kipchoge. He's still there. He's a man who is well-known all over the world. And why is he well-known? Because he ran the full marathon, 42 kilometers, in under two hours. One hour, 59 minutes, 40 seconds on the 12th of October, 2019. I hope you remember that. Now, that, that is quite a feat. And we all marveled that he was able to do it. Of course, we do not agree with this slogan that there is no limit to human beings. But we admired his endurance, didn't we? I don't know whether you know what I'm talking about. But you know, Enios provided all the helps and aims he needed. He had 41 pace setters, cars to help him maintain his speed, the most modern technology, the best shoes that Nike has ever produced. You know, we admired that especially because of his perseverance. Two hours at such a speed, 41 people could not keep up with him. They all came in and they fell out. There is a lesson for us there on perseverance in the life of faith. For we are told that a race has been marked out for us the spectators are looking. The reward has been promised. And it spans all eternity. Reasons for keeping up with the race and the manner of running the race have, have all been provided in the text that I have read to you. And we need to keep on. We need to keep up. We need to look to Jesus, not to ourselves, 
not to our leaders, not to the spectators, not to the resources given to us by God, but to Jesus. We need to look to Jesus, the author, the founder, the perfecter of our faith. Five points that I want to bring to you. Number one, what is the principle on which this exhortation is founded? Number two, what is the duty enjoined to this principle? Number three, what are the means prescribed for facilitating the performance of the duty of looking to Jesus? And number four, why? What are the reasons for looking to Jesus in this race of faith? And lastly, we ask the question, how? How are we going to look to Jesus? What is the manner of looking to Jesus? So it's a fairly easy text to follow. So let's ask what is the principle on which the exhortation to look to Jesus is founded. The Bible says we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses in verse 1. And the exhortation here is that we are to press on in our faith. We are to remain steadfast in our resolve to follow Christ. The race of faith has been set before us, not by ourselves, not by our pastors, but by the Lord himself. We are to keep following Christ who loved us and gave his life for us. We must not turn to the left or to the right. We need to remain fixed and focused on Jesus Christ, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. He's not behind us. He is before us. We are to keep fixed on him. No matter what storm of life might come our way, no matter what difficulties there might be, no matter what cheering or jeering there might be from the spectators, we fix our eyes on Jesus. This principle has been illustrated in the lives of those listed in chapter 11. There were men and women who lived and walked by faith and by faith alone. There were men and women who walked not by sight but by faith. And these same men and women who've gone before us are described here as a cloud of witnesses. They are an incentive to our perseverance. So the aim of this message is to strengthen your faith, to increase your faith. And I hope that when I'm gone, your faith will be better than when I mounted the pulpit. And I pray that your perseverance in the faith will be stronger and clearer than it was. 
The word translated witnesses can either refer to a person who testifies or to a spectator, one who watches as another performs. That they are a great cloud refers to the multitude of their number. They are spectators who themselves participated and completed their own race. What is in view here is the Greek gymnastics or athletics that were presented at Olympia, a town of Elis, once in five years. The best of the Grecian youths competed in the race before a large uh, crowd with a bench of tribunal or adjudicators at the end of the course. The tribunal itself was composed of the best of the retired athletes. The spectators cheered on the athletes and at the end, uh, at the end congratulated them. Then the reward was given after every game had been performed. So what is the function of this cloud of witnesses? Since we are surrounded by so great cloud of witnesses, let us bear in mind that these people are there for us to accomplish two things. One, to attest by their own case the faithfulness of God in their own lives to his people. That's what you read in Hebrews 6.12. So in their struggles against the sin, against the world, against Satan, they won by the grace of God. So they are there, these men, uh, Abraham, Noah, David, all these lists of men, they attest by their own life and example of faith, the faithfulness of God to his people. Number two, they are to be witnessing our struggle of faith and by what has been said in the word of God for us, they are urging us on. But they went through very same things that we go through daily themselves. So the crowd of spectators gives additional spirit to the athletes by shouting their names and urging on to increase their speed and to sustain that speed and to go on and on and on and to be the best they can be. And they would not mind if we would be better athletes than they were. Therefore, the cloud of witnesses who have themselves been in the same contest ought to increase our earnestness and to testify as they do to God's faithfulness. Since others have run, they have won the race. Since we are neither the first nor the last, since we have their approval and their support, 
and they are cheering. And so they are urging us to be steadfast. How can we do anything less? How can we do anything less? Shall we disappoint them? When, like Lazarus, you die and you're taken by the angels to Abraham's bosom, will it be that Abraham will say, yeah, that race was a hard race, but we thank God that his grace was sufficient? Or will he be embarrassed to have you on his bosom? Shall we disappoint them by being non-performers? Shall we disdain the faithfulness of God in his grace in our own lives and be slothful in zeal? Or shall we be fervent in spirit? You've been enlightened by the Spirit of God to come to the knowledge of the doctrines of God's grace. You're not under the sway of lies. And I can see that your city is not, does not have any shortage of false churches. How can you do less than you did under the scepter of Satan's tyranny? Remember how you served the evil one when you were a child of wrath. How you zealously indulged in sin. Now that you are in grace, shall you not be more faithful and more fervent? If you fasted a month while in Islam, I don't know whether any of you was in Islam, shall you not fast at all while under grace? If you gave a tithe and more under the old covenant, or gave so much under the word of faith, if you are from that kind of a background, shall you give less now that you know the richness of the truth? If you served in the church while a preacher of error, will you not preach at all now that you know the truth? If you went witnessing while a JW and spread error that dishonored Christ, how will you not move in, uh, move out door to door, evangelizing and witnessing of the glorious riches of Christ Jesus now that you want to, now that you're in Christ and want to honor Christ? The cloud of witnesses that is set before us urges us on to keep up and keep on and press on and move forward. And then secondly, what is the duty and join to this principle? It is this. Run. And run with endurance the race that is set before us. The other is not part of the cloud of witnesses, as he wrote. He was in the race himself. He spoke and urges us and he says, we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Preachers are not masters. Pastors are not masters to sit while they urge you to Christian duty. Otherwise, 
we would be sons of Pharisees, hypocrites. Preachers and teachers are to leave what they teach and so run the race along with you. They are like the, uh, the pace setters. They do not spectate. They are running with you and urging you on. So the author pledges to run with his readers. Let us run. And that's what I'm urging you today. Let us run. Let no one drop out. Whether young children or older folks, we all need to run together. Let us move together in the work of faith. And in this duty, we are being urged, number one, to rigorous labor. It's a rigorous labor. This is an exhortation to a rigorous exertion. It's not a 100-meter sprint. I wish it was. It isn't. It's not even a 42-kilometer full marathon. It is a lifetime marathon. When you sign up into this race by the grace of God, you persevere and you carry on and you never drop out. You never, you know, come out until the Lord himself sets you aside to be part of the cloud of witnesses. The word translated race is the word from which we get the word agony. And this shows that it is grueling. It is painful. It demands self-discipline. It, it requires determination and perseverance it is to deny yourself to take up the cross to follow Christ it is to cut off your right hand it is to pluck out your right eye it is to mortify the deeds of the flesh it is to crucify the flesh it is to give up the world and to love Christ but the toil is worth it. For soon it shall be crowned, not with perishable wreath of ivy. It's not even with a gold mendel which perishes. It is with the unfading crown of glory. It's not from the bench of the tribunal. It is from the king of kings and the lord of lords. We must run and not give up. We must run actively. We must run zealously. We must run and run vigorously. We must run and run faster. We must run and run duly. We must remain steadfast in zeal. We must wait upon the Lord to renew our strength to soar up on wings like eagles to run and not be weary, to walk and not faint. Yes, let us wait upon the Lord to renew our strength. But it is a rigorous labor. It is also a regulated exertion. 
You may be uh, a fit and fast athlete. But if you will not run within the trap or within the truck and follow the rules and the regulations of the game, you will be disqualified. With all due respect to Eliud Kipchoge, though he got the title of completing the full marathon in under two hours, yet the world record was not adjusted because he did not compete according to the international standards. You must run the race set before you, not your own race. The race has been set before you. You must keep the course. You must follow all the regulations or rules of the game, otherwise you'll be disqualified. Paul says that to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 9, verse, 6, verse 26. Christian duty must be regulated by the law of Christ. It's not simply doing, it's doing what Christ has instructed and commanded in his word. The Bible is our map, the Bible is our compass, we must follow its direction. But there is a progressive performance here as well. The value of your performance of this duty of running the race is equal to your progress. There should be movement. There should be momentum. You should be gaining speed so that the way you began your Christian walk and the way you are so many years down the line, we need to see a number of graves of sins that you have mortified along the way that you've come. There should be progress. Unless there is advancement, then there is no hope of winning the race. How are you making headway, I ask you? Is there growth? Is there increase? Is there strengthening of your faith? Are you growing in the knowledge of God in his word? Are you growing in grace? Are you growing in service? Is there progress in your self-control? Is the fruit of the Spirit ripening? Look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 to 10. This is how you confirm your calling and election and making, make spiritual progress. The Bible says His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of a sinful desire. In other words, you have been saved by grace alone, and this not of yourselves, lest any man should boast. You've been given all the resources by God to be a Christian without any participation on your part. Saved by grace alone, by faith in Christ alone. And since you have these resources, dear Christian, for this very reason, because of what God has made you to be, 
Even though you were dead in your trespasses, he has now made you alive. And he is saying, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And virtue with knowledge. And knowledge with self-control. And self-control with steadfastness, And steadfastness with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they have to be increasing. They will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because if not, whoever lacks these qualities and the increase and continues in these qualities is so nearsighted. That he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So dear brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. You will never fall. There is also a persevering determination. The lifelong race of faith needs endurance up to the end. You must follow Christ until you enter through the gates of heaven. This is what we call the perseverance of the saints. Paul sets an example when he says, I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining to, uh, forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And this is what the Lord meant when he, he told the Ephesian church, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. To the one who conquers, the Lord said, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise, paradise of God. Amen. So that, there, is a, there is a duty. But then thirdly, what are the means? What are the means prescribed for facilitating the performance of his duty? The Bible says, lay aside every weight. Lay aside every sin which clings so closely. The prescription of the Holy Spirit in effective running of this race, looking to Jesus with that rigorous labor, regulated exertion, progressive performance, and persevering determination is in these two things. Lay aside every weight and lay aside sin which clings so closely. And the word translated weight means encumbrance or a bulk or mass of something. This, this weight is not bad necessarily or sinful or wrong in and of itself. Think of an athlete. Think of Morongi, 
wearing a suit and a tie and going to compete with Iliad Kipchoge on the track. I mean, even going on my knees would be difficult. The suit isn't bad if I was going to the office, but if I was going to run, it's an encumbrance. It weighs me down, even though it's innocent and harmless. It diverts my attention. It saps our energy. It dampens our zeal for the things of God. And those are the things, brethren, where we get caught up. Those encumbrances. Because it's not possible to win a marathon if you wore certain clothes like a suit. Or if you went on the track with certain shoes. Yet those clothes and shoes may be very good or even very expensive. Or even good quality for other duties. All athletes, if you've noticed, compete with as few pieces of clothes as possible. Why is that? Because they want to, they want to cut away those encumbrances. When you look at the athletes with as few pieces of clothing as possible, they may not necessarily want to expose their flesh. They are trying not to have these weights, these encumbrances that may hinder them from progressing well. So in the race to heaven, there are many encumbrances that we may lay aside. Let me give you an example. There is nothing wrong in owning a television or in being on social media. There is nothing wrong with that. There is nothing wrong in being a member of your very wealthy golf course in town. Nothing wrong in that. The weight may be something as harmless as your studies, as your career, or something as important as your own family. It could be that. If these things cause you to turn aside either by diverting attention or taking your time or zapping your energy, then you would be willing to discard them or regulate the way you use them. The athletes don't feel embarrassed on their sports gear even though it exposes so much of their flesh. And we excuse them, don't we? So then I ask you, what weight do you have in your life that slows you down in your walk of faith, in your race of faith? When you lift up your hand to look to Jesus, what brings it down? What weight brings it down? Is it your TV? Is it your smartphone? Is it your computer? Is it your girlfriend? Is it your boyfriend? Is it your fiance? Is it your business? Is it your family? Is it the clothing you wear? Is it the fashion? Is it the jewelry? Is it your hairstyle? Is it your makeup? 
We have to be willing to scrutinize all these things. And if you're not willing, you may not be going to heaven. If there is any weight that is too sacred to be evaluated and assessed and scrutinized with a willing heart to discard, then my dear friend, my brother and my sister, that might be your idol. And that could be your destination. And you know what? You know what those weights might be. You know what makes it hard for you to modify the passions of the flesh. You know what puts you into temptations to sin. You know what temptation your neighborhood or your house or your car or your bank account might put you into. You know what makes it hard for you to faithfully appropriate the means of grace for the profit of your soul. You know what is killing your spiritual vitality and progress in sanctification. You know what that is. You know what might be quenching the Spirit of God in your life. You know what is hindering your sanctification, your service to Christ in His church. You know what is affecting your faithfulness. You need to deal with it. Not tomorrow, but today. Because procrastination is what the flesh works with so that we do not progress as fast in the journey of faith. We say, let me think about it. Let, let me pray about it. Let me sleep over it. And we can say, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands, and what happens? Poverty, spiritual poverty, will strike like a robber and take away your soul. And so procrastination in dealing with things that you know you should deal with. You know, there are dear brothers here, dear saints here, who need to change their, their neighborhood because it puts them into temptations every day. There are people who must change their careers because it puts them into spiritual danger every day. You know what makes you late for church? You know what hinders close communion with God? You need to deal with it. If you look at these verses, they're not saying, leave the Spirit to do it for you. Because sanctification and perseverance is a cooperation between you and God. And today I'm pressing the duty upon you. Since you have all these divine privileges and blessings. And secondly and lastly here. Let us lay aside sin which clings so closely. Of all the hindrances of faithful Christian living, sin comes number one. Sin is the greatest and highest obstacle to, faithful, to faithfully 
run the race of faith. Do you know that it is not a reference to sin generally or uh, sin uh, without, you know, a sin. It is called the sin, meaning a specific sin. And one specific sin we need to watch out for and if we will succeed in following Christ and looking to Christ, is the sin of unbelief. It's a sin of doubt, which must be killed. Behind all the acts of sin is the failure to fully trust Jesus Christ and therefore look to him. Let me demonstrate with covetousness. In covetousness, we fail to find our sufficiency in Christ. We fail to discern that God is wise in giving us what we have and loving us in denying us what we do not have. We think that more is better and that the value of our lives consists in the abundance of possessions. Effectively, we reduce ourselves to the level of things and so we become idolaters. And this is how we end up being entangled into the snares of Satan and we become his puppets in lying, bribery, nepotism, compromising, and even adding up, shipwrecking our faith. And the race of faith has been marked out for us and it is set before us. And we are surrounded by so great cloud of witnesses. And we are called upon to lay aside every weight and all encumbrances. And we are to lay aside every besetting sin, any sin that clings so closely and especially the sin of unbelief. And we are to run with endurance and perseverance and patience. And where is our hope? What is our price? Where should we be looking as we run the race? We are looking to, to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. What is the reason? How and why, why are we to look to Jesus in this race of faith? We are looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Why should we look to Jesus? One, because he is the founder. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And as the author of our faith, he is more than our example. He is the the initiator of our faith. He began our salvation in the eternity past. We know that God decreed in himself from all eternity, freely and unchangeably to save his elect from their sin and misery and to bring them into a state of salvation through the Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our confession of faith states so powerfully that by the decree of God for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestinated or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ to, to the praise of his glorious grace. It is through Jesus Christ. And it goes on to say that those of mankind that are predestinated to life 
God, before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4, was laid according to his eternal and immutable purposes and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will. God has chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory out of his mere grace and love without any other thing in the creature as a condition or cause moving him there unto. So he is the founder, he is the author, and he authored our faith even before we were born and before the creation existed. There's no doubt that Christ is the author of our faith, and we should rest in him and submit to him. So you who is unsaved, we are not smarter, smarter than you. It's the grace of God that found us. And it could find you too, especially because you came today and you're hearing the gospel. You hear these children? Christ Jesus is willing to save you because he is the author. He is the founder. He is the one who begins anyone's faith. And he doesn't look at you and say, mm, you're only 10 years old. Let's wait. The Lord doesn't say that. He simply gives faith to those who call upon his name. And so the Bible says, whoever calls upon his name, whoever, meaning young, old, middle-aged, men, women, boys, girls, whoever calls upon his name will be saved. And this is what we read in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you're saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, children. This not of ourselves. This is of God. Because Jesus Christ is the author. He is the beginner of faith. And he begins that faith in children. He begins that faith in adults. Age doesn't matter. You don't read anywhere in the Bible that you're too young to be saved. So Spurgeon said, if you're, if, you're too, if, you're, uh, if you're old enough to die, then it shows that you are old enough to sin. And if you're old enough to sin, then you're old enough to be saved. He is the perfecter of our faith. When he begins that faith, he doesn't say, okay, I began the faith in you, now carry on. He is also the perfecter. And the perfecter means that he is constantly and always coming in your life and coming alongside you and helping you, strengthening your faith, using his word, using his church, using his spirit, helping you daily to trust him more and more. He is the perfecter of our faith. And he will soon come for us. And bring us home into our glorious abode. He continues this faith in us and enables us to follow him since he gave us the Holy Spirit to dwell in everyone whom he has saved. This is what is called the work of progressive sanctification by the Spirit. When the work of justification has begun. When the Lord declares you righteous on the account of Christ and causes you to live a life of faith, 
He gives you his Holy Spirit to continue that work until you glorify it. So we're told that because he is the author, the founder, and the perfect of our faith, we should carry on. That's a reason. And secondly, because of how he ran the race himself. Christ ran the race that was set before him successfully, victoriously, and he triumphed so remarkably. How did Christ run the race? We are, we are told that he himself likewise partook of the same things. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And the Bible says he was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. That's how he ran the race. That's a good reason for us to cling so closely and tightly to him in following him, in looking to him. If Christ the old and the, and the perfect of our race ran the race, shall we not do the same? We should. If our master went this way, Shall we go a different way? Can a disciple be greater than his master or than his teacher? The Bible says a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. And this is the Lord himself who said that in Matthew 10, 24. The, the third reason is because of his endurance of the cross. I mean, Christ endured the cross, the actual cross. Think about that. And we are told how he humbled himself to the point of a servant. To the point of death, even death on a cross. He did not flinch in fear, but he endured the cross of Calvary in great patience. Therefore, the manner in which Christ ran the race was by the way of endurance. What was the trophy he sought? What was the joy that was set before him, motivating this great endurance? It was the glory of the Father. He wanted his Father glorified. In his, and so he said, be glorified in me. It was to gather those whom God gave him. It was to bring his flock together to be under one shepherd, the good shepherd. It was to defeat Satan, to conquer death and hell, and to bring many sons to glory. That was the joy that was set before him. And so he endured the cross. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And why did he endure the cross? He took the place of sinners as the perfect substitute. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The cross which he took was in order to die our death, the death of his elect. He died their death and paid their penalty due to us for our sins. He bought our souls from death and hell. And in so doing, the Lord despised the shame of the cross. He conquered death. He defeated Satan's tyranny. The Lord cried, Tetelestai, it is finished. Salvation is accomplished. Justice is done. He endured the cross. Look at his victory. The Bible says that he despised the shame. And what does that mean? That Christ despised the shame. It means that the Lord 
was above reproach. He was the innocent sufferer. He suffered, leaving an example for us so that we follow in his footsteps. And the Bible says he committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself from him who judges justly. When we suffer, and especially when we think others are inflicting pain on us, what do we do? We revile, we threaten. Sometimes we go away. Or we turn into aloofness. We become lone rages. That's not what our, our Lord did. This has implications for every one of us. When you go through a trial, whether a personal trial, don't leave the course. This is especially very common um, when people suffer what they call church heart. They think it's time to move on to the next church. And when they go to the next church, it's not a perfect church. What happens? They suffer again, church heart. And what do they do? Go to another church. And eventually they leave good churches to be part of churches that are more affirming. I hope not. Look at the victory of our Lord. He did not abandon the course. He did not leave. He carried on and kept up with the run, the race. And that's what we are called to be. And look at his victory. Did he accomplish what was said before him? Was the salvation accomplished for his elect? Was it easy? No. And finally look at his, because of his position. The Bible says he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. means that God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He has a new position as a result of this great victory. Christ Jesus has been elevated to be both the judge and the king. He now rules the world with truth and grace. The scepter of his kingdom, the Bible says, is the scepter of righteousness. And it is clear that God says regarding Christ, Your throne, O God. This is the Father saying, Your throne, O God. Is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. This is to Christ. This is quoted in Hebrews 1.8. So you look to Jesus because he is able to save you. You look to him because he is the only founder and finisher of our faith. You look to Jesus because he successfully ran the race and endured the cross and achieved and accomplished salvation for us. And look at him. Where is he? At the right hand of the glory of God. And the last question is this. How may we look to Jesus? How? What is the manner? The Bible says, consider him, in verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility 
against themselves so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. What does it mean to look to Jesus? It is to consider him, his person, his work, his position. It is to know him that he is God-man in one, one person. It is to know that nothing can go wrong when you are under his tender care. It is to consider him and his work of redemption. It is to realize that all our hope is pegged on the one who is the only redeemer of God's elect. So let me say two things from that verse. First of all, consider Christ's own endurance to hostility. We are told that Christ endured from sin as such hostility and opposition against himself. He was made an object of scorn and ridicule. And this not by righteous people, not by angels such as seraphim or cherubim, but by sinful man. Such as he would have reduced to nothing by the breath of his mouth if he so desired. But he endured all such scorn for, for us. And so we should endure all things for him. Therefore, we must not grow weary of running the race he has marked out for us. We must not be faint-hearted when we face the worst, of, the worst form of persecution or ridicule or scorn or contempt. We must not be weary even when we are despised and rejected. For our Savior went through it all, and this for us. And since Jesus was made like his brethren in every respect, and because he himself has suffered when tempted, the Bible says he is able to help those who are tempted. Depend on his strength when the tempters seem like he will prevail, because the Lord will hold you fast. We are to depend on him who is the sinless one. We are to trust him to deliver us from the wrath of God, for he is the son of God. We are to rely on his strength, for he is the captain of our salvation. We are to go to him when we are heavy laden, and he will give us rest. The Lord was despised and rejected by the very sinners he came to save. The Lord is so gracious. He gave such men of faith as Abel and Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, all the rest of them. Some were victorious, and what about others? Time will not allow me to tell you of those who were sown into two. All that happened. But he has given us his own dear son to be the best, the greatest, the highest example in order to encourage us to perseverance in the faith. And not only so, to give us the best resources there is for us to continue in this journey. And then lastly, do not grow weary, dear saints. Do not be faint-hearted. The Bible says, consider him so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. I know you've been running this race for a while now. 
the Lord knows too. You have tripped many times, fallen down, woken up. True? The Lord knows that. You feel like giving up sometimes. You pray and you feel like your prayers are not going beyond your ceiling. No, those are just feelings. The Lord hears. Don't grow weary. My job this morning and the job of your pastors all day long is to coach you and train you to run with perseverance by pointing you not to themselves, but to Christ. By explaining to you faithfully his royal promises so that you may make every faithful saying yours. It's by equipping you with the necessary skills and tools for long distance running. It is by holding you up in prayer and by encouraging you and urging you on, sometimes by admonishing you, sometimes by rebuking you, sometimes by correcting you. But they are doing all that to train you for righteousness so that you may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's your job. Please be willing to listen to, the, to, 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 to their admonition, to their counsel, to their shepherding for as long as you live. Don't be right in your own eyes. When admonition is brought to you, be patient to listen and to receive it with thanksgiving. Rebuking a person is very hard, isn't it, pastors? We must our courage before we come to rebuke you. So to, to come within that weakness and be rejected is a double tragedy for us. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. To look to Jesus, the chief shepherd, is also to submit to the under-shepherds that he has put in your lives. To look to Jesus is to also be part of his body, his church, and to belong. And not to be saying, well, I'm not, I'm not an eye. You know, I'm only a hand. I'm only a toe. Yeah, you're important. There is a great possibility of being faint-hearted because of the hostility and opposition against us by the world in which we live. It's fallen. The world, the flesh, this, uh, Satan himself are constantly seeking in a child of Zion to trap that child into their vanity, to the ruin of their souls. But God will help us. Unless you're constantly vigilant, you will fight this race of faith too much. And you're likely to meet with Mr. Worldly Wise and Mr. Legality. And they will turn you away into the enchanted land and, or into all those mountains. And what's going to happen? You will come tumbling down or you will, you will end up in the castle of giant despair and all that to the torment of your soul. Don't turn to the right or to the left. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. The world tries to attract you to its vanity fair by the desires of the flesh 
and the desires of the eyes and the pride of possessions. And then you lose your focus on Christ. You begin thinking, if only I had a higher salary or I had more money, then you begin compromising on your basic Christian principles, like speaking the truth at all times, or faithful stewardship of responsibilities and resources, of your time, talent, and treasures. Look at how you live. How does it contribute to your eternal destiny? I'm pressing your consciences, brethren. I have to. Look at how you live. Ask yourself, am I trapped by vain desires of the flesh? Of the eyes? Pride of life? Worldliness? Materialism? You know, the force of your flesh's grip on your soul must not be ignored in perseverance. So you have, to, you have to make very sincere and candid evaluations. Why do I live in the house that I live in? Why do I spend so much on clothes or why do I have to buy a second car or take my children to the schools that I want to take them? Assess the motives of every decision you make. Ask if you are looking to Jesus every morning. If you're walking by faith or by sight at every turn. If you're walking through the doors of providence that God has opened for you, then you will not be trusting in the arm of flesh because it will fail you. The flesh plays a big role in bringing many sins to spiritual paralysis and even possibly ruin. Remember, before you were saved, you live in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. But now you've been saved. We believe that once you've been saved truly by the grace of God, you cannot be lost. But we also know that it's very presumptuous for any Christian to live in sin and to say that he is persevering in the faith. We know that the gospel of our salvation is very clear, that if the work of Christ of redemption has been given to you, you cannot be lost. But we also know that you, may, you can test that the Lord is good. You can enjoy the enlightenment of the word of God and still be lost because you are never truly saved. And that's why self-examination, self-assessment has to be pressed upon the saints every day. Because one of the means of persevering in the faith is warnings of the word of God. We must bring them to bear in your lives as pastors. And in this way, 
urge you all to remain in the straight and in the narrow. May the Lord bless his word in our lives. Lord, we thank you for the sweetness of your word.